If you have a Bible, you'll want to turn open to Ephesians chapter 3 as we continue our study through this amazing epistle. You know, there's, if there's one thing less believable than an impossible message, is that an impossible messenger delivering an impossible message. However, if the impossible messenger exists and he's delivering the impossible message, then it stands to reason that maybe the impossible message is not so impossible after all. Okay, if it was impossible to follow that, let me illustrate it another way. From a classic scene from American cinematography, it is a scene in which Marty McFly tries to convince Doc Brown that time travel is actually possible. Now, obviously, Doc is not convinced until he sees the time machine that actually resembles the DeLorean DMC-12. See, Doc doesn't believe Marty's message that time travel is actually possible until he actually sees the messenger, in this case, the, the DeLorean converted into a time machine. Then he believes that time travel is possible. Back to the Future has lots of practical insights like that, you'll find. Now, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, we have a similar yet far more profound situation. Paul the Apostle has just brought to the readers of this letter an impossible message in chapter 2. If you recall, that message is that now, through the man Jesus Christ, all humanity can be restored to God without the need for the rituals and sacrifice, without the need of keeping the demands of Torah, that being restored to God is possible by a simple, although life-transforming act of faith in the person and work of this man, Jesus Christ, that he did on the cross. As a result, all people now, regardless of race, language, socioeconomic rank or gender, can be restored to God Because scandal of scandals, God became man and made it all possible. To a culture that was bound by religious deities whom could only be approached through a series of secret rituals and rites, cryptic practices, to a culture that only knew the imperial strength of Rome, and only those who had standing were well-connected, well-established, and well-to-do, such a blessing, uh, such a message of grace and acceptance could hardly be conceived let alone believed by these people. Yet that is exactly what Paul had just communicated to them, an impossible message. The only way to make an impossible message believable is that if an equally impossible messenger brought it, revealing that if the messenger is possible, then maybe this message is not so impossible after all. And that's what's what's happening in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. So as we read through these 13 verses, as we study them together this morning, what we'll see is who Paul is, what the mystery is about, how the mystery is revealed, why this mystery matters, and where this mystery takes us. So who Paul is, verses 1 through 5 and 13, what the mystery is about, verse 6, how the mystery is revealed, verses 7 through 9, why this mystery matters, and where this mystery takes us in verses 11 through 12. What I'd like to do is just pray for God to bless the teaching of His Word, and then I will read the text and we'll jump into our study. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are good, kind, loving, and just. We also thank You that You are holy and transcendent and so different from us. 
And let, yet, Lord, you, you bridge the gap between man and God through your Son, Jesus Christ, and did what none of us could do. Father, we also thank you that you did not leave us without a witness, but made it clear in the Scriptures what your plans have been and are for our lives. So, Spirit, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see this morning from this amazing text, this mystery of the ages, this mystery of the gospel and the church that you have revealed now to us. Father, may it fill our vision with this amazing understanding of who you are and what you want to do. May it blow our minds and rock us out of complacency and apathy. May we be compelled by the beauty of what you teach us to serve you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We'll pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So following on Paul's pattern that he had in chapter 1, where he explained this amazing reality that they had this salvation given to them by the triune God, and then what he does in light of that teaching is pray for them that they might live in light of that teaching. He does the same thing here in chapter 3. He he launches into a prayer that they would comprehend and live in the reality that they are this new humanity that he just taught about in chapter 2, particularly verses 11 through 19. This mind-blowing truth that now because of the work of Christ, that the barriers between God and man, and man and man, and even man within man, have been all removed, and that brings about a new state of being. And Paul used those metaphors, that we are like in uh, citizens of the same kingdom. We are members of the same family. We are actually stones in the temple in which God dwells. And that's going to have radical changes for the way we live life. And so Paul launches into a prayer that helps them understand this and apply these teachings so they can live in light of this. But he realizes, as we see breaking into verse 1, that what he's about to do, to, to, to pray about, may be premature because it is so massive that he actually stops himself and, and reiterates again the importance of the church. And we know that because if you look in your text, verse 14 has the exact same words as verse, four, uh, verse 1. It starts with the words, for this reason. You see, what happened was, look at verse 1 now, it says the same thing, for this reason. But just before Paul launches into the prayer, he realizes, I'm bringing an impossible message. I have an idea. If there's an impossible messenger that proves that there's an impossible message, perhaps they will comprehend it even better. So he stops himself explains, and so what we have in verses 2 through 13 is kind of this pastoral parentheses before he actually gets into the prayer in verse 14, which we're going to look at next week. So that's the structure of our text. Paul, following his pattern, the pattern being knowledge of the gospel of the scriptures is not for knowledge's sake alone. We are not about becoming biblically literate people. Knowledge of the scriptures should lead to a gospel fluency. A gospel fluency is that you understand context and you can navigate situations. He wants them to live in light of the reality, but wants to explain it one more time because of the significant impact it should have on their lives. So he stops the prayer, explains the next, the the amazing mystery that is the church, and then launches into the prayer next week. So today, we're going to look at that pastoral parentheses, and we're going to look at by Paul explaining if the impossible messenger is here, then maybe they can grasp that the impossible message is true. So he starts by talking about who he is, verses 1 through 5, and a little bit in verse 13. 
I want you to write down two words if you're a note taker that describes who Paul is, is he's a prisoner and he's an apostle. And kind of the, the halo effect of that is that as a prisoner, he suffers, and as an apostle, he's a steward. And so we see Paul saying that in verses 1 through 5. But notice, Paul's not a prisoner of Rome or Nero, is he? Paul calls himself a prisoner of who? Christ, which is very significant because he's sitting in a Roman cell. And he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ, not of Rome, not of the Caesar, not of Nero, but I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Well, what does Paul mean by that? See, according to Acts 25 and 26, Paul was, is sitting in this Roman prison, serving time, for the exact gospel message he just got through preaching to the Ephesians. For the message of grace and transformation, he was put in prison for that. And Paul sees the chains on his hand as a direct result of his service to God in preaching the gospel. He recognizes these chains as a small price to pay for the salvation of these early believers. He called his chains their glory in verse 13. See, Paul viewed his difficult circumstance not as evidence that God had forgotten him, but as proof that he had not. So, with that kind of the introduction, I don't think I even read the text to you yet, did I? No. Well, let's, I hope your appetite is whetted. Let's dive into the text. Paul writes, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery has been made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This, the, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known now to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul is a prisoner, not of Rome or Nero, but of Christ. And he's a prisoner because he's preaching the gospel. But also he notices that his imprisonment is not a thought that or evidence that God had abandoned him or forgotten about him, he saw his imprisonment as the evidence that God had not forgotten about him. That God was actually causing tribulation in his life for the good of others. So he called himself a prisoner of Christ, and his suffering was not in vain, but led to glory. Now, keep your finger in Ephesians and go over to 2 Corinthians. If you're new to reading your Bible, that's just to the left. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes this. 
in verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So what Paul is saying is that as, he, as he's thinking about his current situation, as he, he said the same thing to the Corinthians, that this light and momentary affliction, he considers it not even comparable to the eternal weight of glory that is coming to them. Now, what are, what's that affliction that Paul's talking about? You don't have to turn there. Let me just read to you the afflictions that Paul endured in his ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. He writes this, Five times I received at the hand of the Jews... Forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea on frequent dangers, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city and danger in the country, danger at sea, danger from false witnesses, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposed." And apart from all these other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So that's quite a lot of affliction that Paul is enduring. But he says to them in the, in the earlier in chapter 4, this momentary affliction, he says this light momentary affliction is preparing within us, preparing within Paul, an eternal weight of glory beyond anything that can be compared. Imagine Paul being an accountant, and he has the ledger sheet in front of him. On the one side, he has written out, beaten with rods, 40 times hit being whipped, so that's 120 lashes by a whip, shipwrecked, danger, betrayed, and he writes out the ledger. And on the other side of the ledger, he writes down, preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, planted churches throughout all Asia Minor, pagans now sons and daughters of the true king salvation for humanity so he looks at his ledger and says look i've done the calculus this is beyond comparison whatever was on here and hear this it's not inconsequential neither was paul suffering or our suffering inconsequential as a matter of fact i think we need to grow in a theology of suffering to help us understand it and go through it because it happens so much. But what Paul is saying, that is in comparison to what is coming, this is a momentary affliction. It's interesting, he uses this word, uh, eternal weight of glory. Maybe I'm dating myself here, but you remember used to saying the phrase, man, that's heavy, right? What do we mean by that expression? It's got so, there's substance to it, right? It's got heaviness. We even have another metaphor that, that, that's the opposite. We call something shallow. The sense of heaviness and substance. By the way, the Hebrew word for holiness, chavod, means heaviness, weight. God's holiness is heavy. And he's saying, the sufferings that we endure, the suffering that he's endured, and they were significant. He says, in comparison, it's just a light, momentary affliction to what's coming. So Paul is this, is this prisoner, and he's a sufferer. And he said, well, how does that make him an impossible messenger? Because the second characteristics I define him by, a steward and an apostle. Verse 2, he calls himself a steward, and verse 8, he calls himself an apostle. 
But before Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, he was what? Saul the Pharisee, whose life aim was to exterminate the Christian church, the gospel, and all who believed in it. As a matter of fact, the first time Paul is mentioned in the New Testament is Acts chapter 8. As he's on the, oh, excuse me, on Acts chapter 8, where they are, where he's giving consent to the murder of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. That's how we're introduced to this man. Acts chapter 9 says that he was breathing out murderous threats against the church. And in Acts chapter 9, on his way to Damascus, with letters in hand from the leaders of the Jerusalem, Jerusalem synagogue, the religious leaders, to find and execute and torture any Christians he comes across, Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus, and he's radically changed. In verse 8 of Ephesians 3, he called himself the least of all the saints, the least of all the apostles. Because in 1 Timothy 1, he calls himself the foremost of all sinners. Because he remembers his life not that long ago from when he wrote Ephesians, when it was committed to eradicate and exterminate the Christian church. But now he doesn't seek to imprison people for believing in Christ. Now he's Christ's prisoner. He doesn't seek to exterminate the gospel. He's become its foremost herald. And he's saying, if I can be this very person, who it was well known, if you recall from Acts chapter 9, when God sent him to Ananias, Ananias said, Lord, no, this cannot be the man you want to use. It was well known that Paul hated the Christian church. And Paul's saying, look, if this is impossible that I would be now the foremost herald of the gospel, then you got to believe the impossibility of what I've just been teaching you. So what is it that he's been teaching them? And that's what verse 6 is about. We talked about who Paul is. Now what is the mystery about? Verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is why the gospel is so important. We never get past the gospel. The gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity by which then you kind of graduate into the more deeper things like the epistles or the book of Revelation. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. It is all throughout the New Testament. It is the gospel that breaks down the barriers between God and man. It is the gospel that breaks the barriers between man and man. It is the gospel that breaks the barriers within man. The gospel is not just the content being proclaimed. It is the means by which God uses to bring transformation in people's lives. I'll take you to 2 Thessalonians. You don't have to go there. I'll just read it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 13, Paul writes this. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the mystery of the ages was the gospel because it was the gospel that brought all people together in one. In chapter 2, he called them fellow citizens, uh, family members, the same temple. In chapter 3, he's doing the same thing. He's piling on more metaphors that you're fellow heirs. You all get this inheritance. You're the same body, and you're partakers of the same promises in Christ. 
The point he's trying to show is that there's all these metaphors that we are united. We are united. That the gospel brings an amazing unity, even if the gospel displays a wonderful diversity. What do I mean by that? Is that the gospel is all throughout the Old Testament and New in so many ways. So, so often, as a matter of fact, we often miss it. To realize that every parable, every narrative, every story in the scriptures is the gospel being revealed. It's the orphan that gets adopted. It's the oppressed that is set free. It is the poor being made rich, the lost being found. It's the blind receiving their sight. It's the prodigal that was brought home. It's the rich willing to become poor. It's the king being the servant. It's the judge who serves the sentence. It's the ugly being made beautiful and the beautiful being willing to be made ugly. There are 10,000 more ways throughout all of Scripture that this message of the radical nature of the gospel is being sung to us, and it can sing not only in our lives, but the lives of the people you work with, you study with, and live by every day. And it's our task to bring, them, bring that to them, because that was what Paul is saying. Look at verse 7 and 9. If that was the mystery that this gospel brings down all the barriers and it's free to all people, how is that mystery then revealed? And Paul says here in verse 9, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the least of the apostles, this grace was given to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is this plan. Let me use words that, that, that we use commonly in the church, evangelism and discipleship. How is the gospel revealed, Paul says? Through evangelism, through preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ, and discipleship. Continually making people understand this amazing plan that God is implementing that transforms humanity to be what we were always intended to be. Now, you can use other words. You can say preaching or teaching, evangelism, discipleship. The point being, this is how the gospel or the mystery is revealed ongoing. Through individual saints, Christians sitting in this room, at your office, at your school, in your neighborhoods, keeping your antennas up, how do I make the unsearchable riches of Christ known to these people? How do I make the gospel sing in this person's life in a way that they can hear this magnificent truth? And some interesting, as I studied for this passage, uh, a lot of the translations, that term there, the unsearchable riches of Christ, clearly they, it's an amazing term. Because here are some of the words they've used to translate this word, Unsearchable, inexplorable, untraceable, unfathomable, inexhaustible, illimitable, inscrutable, incalculable, infinite. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that we can never get tired of. And if you find in your heart that you're getting kind of tired of the gospel, or you think you've been there, done that, you heard that, you may not understand what the gospel is. Because as I said, all the metaphors, all the parables, all the stories of the Bible are from various and different ways trying to illuminate this amazing thing that we get to sing about, hear about, study day in and day out. The mystery is revealed through individual members of the church taking the task of evangelism and discipleship, preaching and teaching seriously so that the unsearchable riches of Christ might be made known. Now, the fair question is to say, well, why? Right? That's always the thing we need to know. Well, why is that? Look at verse 10. And this is the amazing part of of this text. I almost think verse 6 and verse 10 are the central verses. 
A little study, a Bible study tip here. Whenever you see the expression, therefore, or so that in the text, what's coming next is explanatory and very important of everything that preceded it. Right? You've heard people say, if you see a therefore, ask why it's therefore, right? So whenever you see a therefore or so that, whatever follows is usually very important to the author's argument. So why is all this important? Why this mystery matters? Verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Okay? When does this happen? So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. How does this happen? Verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. To whom is this manifold wisdom of God known? Look at verse 10 again. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. But look at verse 11. This is almost the clincher. This, what he just said in verse 10, was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. What Paul is saying is that this organization, this new humanity, this thing called the church has always been God's plan. In verse 11, he says, the eternal purposes of God realized in Christ. You see, when God began things in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 1, 2, and 3, and things went sideways with Adam and Eve, and they kind of restarted it with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and then got the nation of Israel going, and created the Jewish nation and the Jewish people, all that was significant. But what Paul is saying is, they were all pointing forward to the church. Verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known and displayed to all the heavenly rulers and authorities. I remember when my, uh, one of my professors taught on this passage, he said this, and I wrote it down because it was so significant. In the classroom of God's universe, he is the teacher, the angels are the students, and we are the illustration, and the subject is the wisdom of God. Listen to that again. In the classroom of God's universe, God is the teacher. The angels are the students, and we are the illustration, and the subject is the wisdom of God. I want you to go to 1 Peter with me. I'm sorry to keep you jumping all over, but this is stuff I want you to see for yourself. 1 Peter says something very similar to this, is that the church is God's university for the angels, and it's a display of God's glory, God's power, God's wisdom, and grace. Look at what Peter writes. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 10. So Peter writes to these these Christians who are living all scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Here it is. Things into which angels long to look. 
That word, long to look, it, it's, a, it's a great, got this great range of meanings. Have you ever seen a child in a candy store and they're not quite tall enough to see behind the glass? What do they do? They get up on their pink, you know, they get up on their tippy toes and they're trying to look at the gumballs and all that. But there's another range of meaning in this word, long for, and it's talking about someone who's dying of thirst, needing water. I love the fact that Peter chooses this word because on the one hand, this is the most significant, important thing that there is. On the other hand, it shows the delight and joy of finding out what's going on. And Peter says, the angels long to look into this gospel of salvation, this church that God has created. Because what Paul's saying in Ephesians is, the church is the manifold display, the display of God's wisdom so that all the heavenly realm can see his wisdom. Now, I know we don't think of ourselves that way, do we? No. But this is what Scripture says is our identity. And if we don't get this identity in ourselves, we do not live out of that. Remember a few weeks ago I talked about the importance of identity? You will always live out of your identity. You will always live out of your identity. I'm tempted to violate a rule my wife said I should never violate when I'm speaking uh, and say something extemporaneously. But it's so good because it captures the moment. Have you ever, and I'm tempted, but okay, here it goes. Have you ever had the experience of speaking publicly only to realize after you were done that your fly was down? (laughs) The point I'm getting at is that when you're speaking publicly, if that's ever happened to you, and you have no idea, you're full of confidence, and you're saying what you need to say. The moment you realize your fly was down, you realize, oh my gosh, I would never have done that. It changes entirely how you would have behaved based on your self-identity. Does that make sense? Because I just was really vulnerable right there. (laughs) But that's the point I'm getting at, is we will always live out of our identity. And if we do not understand that our identity is a group of people that displays the manifold wisdom of God, we will not live that way. That's why this issue of identity that we talked about weeks ago, that's why it is so important. That's why Paul, before launching into prayer that they would apply these truths, stops and says, no, you really need to understand what I'm saying here. When I'm saying that God has brought humanity together is this one new, uh, one new group called the church. Because if you don't get that our lives, in, in the things that seem actually almost mundane, is the most significant thing going on. Not just on earth, but in the, in the heavenlies. And when you think about it, just in this hour we celebrated the birth of a life and someone's death. It does not get more significant than those two, those two poles on this spectrum. But it's so much of the stuff that happens on the in-between that dullens us to this high calling that the church has. Because tomorrow morning you have to work, wake up and go to work and do what you normally do in your routine. And we get blunted by the routine of life and forget why we are actually here. It's to proclaim the riches of Christ and make known the mystery of the plan from the hidden from ages and revealed now. You see, whatever you might be, housewife, power plant engineer, student, retiree, whatever that thing is, is not your driving identity. It is a member of the church that is a display of the manifold wisdom of God for all eternity, for the heavenlies to see, that angels with great delight and great urgency are looking into how this all plays out. But if you forget that, other identities will crowd out. And the size of your life, as I said before, gets reduced 
to the size of just your life. You don't want to be there. One day, we're going to stand before God, and he's going to ask, how did you steward your life? Not, not in terms of whether or not I make it in or not, right? That's a done deal because of Christ. But I don't want to say, I just didn't steward my life well. I got distracted, and I got deceived. We need to have eyes wide open that we are the church and the most significant institution on this planet. Look at history, wherever the church goes, schools, hospitals, orphanages, injustice is fought, oppression is overthrown. Yes, we've got problems too, right? And no one should be more cognizant of that than us, and we need to own those. But there's still nothing like this institution. And we are a we together. There is no Jesus in me unless there's a Jesus in we. It's popular today to be against kind of organized institutional religion. We see that all over the place. People want spirituality but not involved in a church. Can I tell you, you really can't have spirituality unless you're involved in a church. Yes, you can be a Christian. Don't mishear me. You can be a Christian and not be a part of a church. But what I am saying, and I think Ephesians has taught us this well, you cannot love Christ the way you should love Christ without a church. Right? I know that's radical to hear because a lot of people conceive of the church as a, uh, as, as a producer of consumable goods. That's really how people view churches. And things are gauged whether you like the church on base whether or not your personal preferences and tastes are, are matched up or not. But the church is not a producer of goods and services for us. The church is, folks as Ephesians is teaching us, it is the focal point of Christ's kingly activity to redeem this world and humanity through the body of Christ. And what we do when we gather, as we'll learn in Ephesians chapter 4, is to get equipped for the work of what? The ministry of service. Your calling is so much higher than you probably perceive of yourself. And Ephesians chapter 3 is reminding us we all together are a display of God's glory, power, wisdom, and grace. God's glory is seen in the transformation of rebels into sons and daughters, strangers into family, the dead brought alive. God's power is seen in that the gospel has the power to conquer death, to overcome racial and social and economic and cultural differences and bring all diverse lives together. God's wisdom is seen is that he overthrew the powers of darkness through of all things the death of his own son. God's grace is seen that he would do any of these things to begin with for us. That's what we are. And we must have this self-identity or we will not fulfill the calling God's given to us. Paul is saying that we have this, this is the mystery, this is how it's revealed, this is why we do it, and then finally, this is where it takes us in verses 11 and 12. We talked about that this was God's plan from the ages, verse 12, in whom, speaking of Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. I love those words. We have access to God with boldness and confidence in Christ. I've shared with you the numerous times my children and even my dog have access to dad when he's studying. My wife loves me enough that she will not bother me when I'm doing that, but the kids, because of their relationship with me and my dog, has no problem just bolting through and crashing into me to hang out while I'm studying because they have access. 
And as their dad and, and master, so I never call the dog, he's my son. I, I'm not into that. I'm the master. Um, he's my, I'm his master, not his daddy. I love, though, that he has this wonderful confidence to come bolting into my presence. And the response will always be the same, joy and delight. That's the access we have to the Heavenly Father through Christ. That's our identity. We need to live in that. Let me close by saying this. Paul is trying to make three major points here. Um, And here they are, just really quick. Paul is talking about the sovereign plan of God. Right? You see that all over the place. And that plan includes even down to the sufferings of individuals like Paul and to the institution of an organization of cosmic proportions like the church. God's sovereign plan it incorporates all of that. At the center of God's plan is his church. Just in the book of Ephesians alone, do yourself a favor. Spend 10 minutes this week and read the first three chapters with kind of these eyes wide open. The church is at the center of God's plan. At the center of the church is Jesus Christ. See, these concentric circles are working. God has a sovereign plan. At the center of that plan is the church. At the center of the church is Christ. We all here, as Paul says in Corinthians, are members of the body with Christ being the head. We all have a role to play. Remember, what we are, we are together. And we have that through promises he gives us in his word and through the power of his spirit. Let's pray.